0: People act in very individualized ways that sometimes defy explanation or categorization. And that's really interesting to me, because that's real. That's what I feel like sort of, you know, the idea of what it means to be an artist, to try to explain why people do irrational things, at least that's why I'm an artist.
1: That's author and one of the judges for the Poetry Out Loud final, Brando Skyhorse. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Brando Skyhorse had a childhood to be reckoned with. Growing up in the Echo Park area of Los Angeles, he had five stepfathers, most between stints in prison. He lived with his mother and grandmother, who had a very tempestuous relationship. His mother had a tremendous sense of fun, a flair for drama, and an intense violent streak. A great storyteller, she earned money as a phone sex worker. She also expected her kid to do well in school, and Brando did, eventually winning a scholarship to Stanford. He went on to a career in publishing before writing his own novel, The Madonnas of Echo Park, which received the 2011 Penn Hemingway Award for a distinguished first book of fiction. Some three years later, he followed Madonnas with his memoir called Take This Man, A tough-minded look at his complicated childhood, where he was always uncertain about what was true and what was made up. Let's begin with your name. How's that? Brando Skyhorse, because there is a story what there. What a story. There is right? a story. Yeah,
0: it, it's a story that I've gotten used to telling many times over the years. So my mother was very enamored with American Indian culture. This was the late 60s, early 70s. And I'm sure as many of your listeners would probably remember, though none of my students have like any knowledge of it all, <laughs> Marlon Brando turned down the Oscar for The Godfather in 1972. And he sent up an American Indian woman named Sachin Littlefeather, to refuse the Oscar because of the depiction of American Indians in uh, Hollywood films over the years. And my mother was really struck by that. And so when it came time for her to have a child, Brando was the only sort of logical conclusion that, that she came to, though Pacino was a close runner up. So Pacino's Skyhorse. I don't know, that might have been my, my entire career as a writer might have gone in an entirely different direction, who knows. But when uh, my biological father abandoned us when I was three years old, my birth name was Brando Kelly Ulloa, U-L-L-O-A. It's a very unusual Mexican name. And my mother decided that simply because I was born a Mexican and that she was a Mexican as well, that was no reason that we shouldn't become other people. So she decided to reinvent both of us as American Indians. And she had been corresponding with a man that she had, uh, I guess through a sort of Prison Connection magazine named Paul Skyhorse Johnson. He was incarcerated in Illinois. And he, quote unquote, agreed to adopt me as his own son. And I didn't know any of this until I was about maybe 12 or 13 years old. I had clues, but so basically I was reinvented as Brando Skyhorse. And then when I found out the truth, my mother decided that, well, I mean, she basically decided that we should keep living our lives as American Indians. And so after I was 12 or 13, even though I knew I was Mexican, I knew my Mexican name, I kept telling people that I was American Indian because that story just seemed easier than the story I just told you right now.
1: There is something so American
0: about that story. It is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's. It's like Gatsby. It's like, yeah, but in, like, you know, a poor neighborhood.
1: (laughs) No, exactly. Without all the
0: parties. Without the
1: parties. But America, it's where you reinvent yourself.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. And and I think it touches on a lot of dynamics and, and themes that are certainly interesting to me as a writer. You know, growing up in Los Angeles, literally the town, if you could say that reinvention was, you know, born in a particular city. L.A., Hollywood. That would certainly be it. Certainly, I'm familiar, especially in my neighborhood, about people who have come from Mexico, assuming different identities. You know, perhaps being in the country illegally. You know, all of that is sort of taking place around us. And I think that my mother sort of found like the perfect place, basically, to pull this off for both of us, uh, because you know the idea of like two American Indians living in a predominantly Mexican-American neighborhood, the fact that that would seem more plausible. Than the fact that we were just two Mexican Americans living in a Mexican American neighborhood. It's really quite interesting. But I think everyone wants to believe in reinvention. You know what I mean? Like everyone wants to believe that these sort of unusual people that we meet, you know, fantastical storytellers, because my mother was a hell of a storyteller. What a wonderful sort of story to believe that right here in front of you is an American Indian.
1: I know exactly what you mean, and of, and the name she chose, what, her name.
0: Yeah, well, her name was uh, Maria Teresa Benaga. That was her given name uh, because her stepfather was Filipino, and she reinvented herself as Running Deer Skyhorse. And again, you know, when was the last time you met a running deer? And again, like choosing like literally the most Indian of Indian names people were mesmerized. And I think it's that's the, that's sort of the thing. Like it's not, it, but for, for her it wasn't just the name. It was sort of her appearance because she looked very Indian. She had very sort of sharp cheekbones, her features, her facial structure. She wore uh, turquoise jewelry, you know, she had long hair. She would wear these sort of Indian inspired blouses which in the 70s were very easy to find apparently because looking at all those old photographs they were everywhere. So she, she looked the part, she acted the part, she talked the part. You know, everything about her was, to, in her mind, authentic. And, you know, I've spoken, when I, when I you know, spoke with a, a couple of people that knew my mother in the course of writing this book, you know, she believed it. She legitimately believed she was an American Indian. So, you know, it's hard for me to think about this and feel like, you know, she wasn't trying to be malicious. I don't believe that. I think she just literally wanted to be something that she wasn't.
1: Yeah. Her behavior certainly was as she will know, very erratic and at times, you know. Somewhat, somewhat
0: questionable parenting techniques. Somewhat <laughs>
1: questionable parenting techniques, but her claiming a Native
0: American heritage, it's what she wanted, so why not? Yeah, and the thing that's amazed me since I've published this book is I have met about literally half a dozen people who have approached me at readings or sent me emails and said, oh, my mother said that she was an Indian too. And I'm like, that's a thing, really? Like, there are people, I mean, like, I thought like my mother had that corner on that, but like, no, apparently this was sort of an, uh, an issue. And I, I obviously have complicated feelings about it because I feel that American Indians have had so many things plundered from them, their land, their culture, you know, using them as mascots for sport teams. I mean, just it, the, the list goes on and on. But I feel that, you know, my mother was trying to access that culture from a legitimately sincere place. Not that that makes it better, but I understand. I understand where she was coming from. I think it's very different if you're somebody with power who does that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Your mother
1: embraced it. She would volunteer yeah, no, with she... the American Indian movement yeah. and, you know, would call people out on anything she thought was racist. Oh, what she... happened when you had to say the Pledge of Allegiance? And...
0: Yeah, I was uh, I was five or six years old. I was in first grade, and my mother decided that she was going to ask me to not recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Because, you know, I don't know what they do in schools now, but back then, like every morning, you had to get up and say the Pledge of Allegiance. And so she gave me a little speech to recite. And uh, when my time came, my first grade teacher, you know, wonderful woman, you know, like completely unprepared for what was about to happen. Everyone stands up and, you know, I'm in a multicultural classroom with predominantly Vietnamese and Latinos and uh, I stand up and I say well you know due to the way that my country has treated my people I cannot pledge allegiance to this flag and you know she just didn't handle it well the teacher did not handle it well she came over to my desk like literally like grabbed me pulled me out of my chair you know forced me to put my hand over my heart and my mother loved that detail I wish I was making that up but like she forced me to put my hand over my heart and then just threw me out of the class until uh, recess you know I know it sounds kind of shocking the fact a teacher would touch a student but This was the 70s, it was a very different era. So I told my mother about this and of course she was thrilled, you know, never mind that I might have felt uncomfortable or was crying, I'd gotten kicked out of a classroom. And so the next day a mysterious man who looked suspiciously like a Native American, had long hair, somebody from the Indian Center downtown, came with my mother and had I guess about an hour conference after school with my first grade teacher. And, you know, at the end of the, I wasn't there, I was outside, but at the end of the conference, they all came out laughing as if it was, you know, just the great, you know, as if my mother just told the most wonderful story in the world. And my teacher told me, oh, well, you know, you don't have to say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. You can just sit quietly at your desk or color or do whatever it is that you want. You don't have to do that. But that was like, like in my mom's mind, that was a victory. You know, she had somehow struck a blow against oppression, but, you know, all she'd really done was taught me that I was going to have a lot more of these uncomfortable kinds of confrontations, uh, which is why I think I kind of try to go out of my way to avoid them now.
1: Yeah, well, indeed you did. (laughs) You were raised by your mother and your grandmother, living in your grandmother's house. Describe their relationship.
0: It was very tempestuous, uh, very complicated. My mother and grandmother had sort of different philosophies on how to raise a child. And my grandmother was basically like a surrogate mother for me which I know sounds weird because my mother was also living with me as well, but my mother was in many ways almost like an older sister because my grandmother did all the chores. My grandmother did all the cooking, all the cleaning, washed all the dishes, washed all our clothes, hung up all the clothes in the backyard. She did light yard work. You know, she would complain about the fact nobody helped her, but then any time you tried to help her, it's like, no, I could do it myself. But doing all of those things, I think she felt gave her license to have some sort of say how I was raised. And my mother simply didn't feel that way. I think my mother came from that environment of like, oh, you know, I want my child to be free and I want my child to read whatever he wants and question authority. But the moment I started questioning her authority, that's when things got complicated. So it was a really challenging environment to be between those two positions. And on top of all of that, my mother would constantly bring in a new series of father figures. I had five stepfathers, one about every three years and i think in many ways it would have been simply easier if she had left the sort of pseudo father figures out of the picture um, because that also created a lot of tension
1: with a couple of exceptions your mother was a very beautiful woman it it was like she went
0: to the thrift store to find <laughs> these men if only we were so lucky no she went to prison she, for, she yeah a thrift store would have been fine i mean but you know
1: <laughs> And it's just like, clearly, if this is the population from whence you are choosing your partner, chances are it might not end
0: up so good. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. With the benefit of hindsight, obviously, I think my mother could have benefited from perhaps a little self-confidence because as beautiful as she was and as confident as she was in sort of her invented persona, she also was very insecure and as she got older, she stopped leaving the house. I mentioned this in the book, but in the early 1980s, my mother, in order to take care of us, started working as a phone sex operator. And as a result, my mother stopped leaving the house. Because she, she was addicted to the money, it was pretty good, it was tax-free, but you had to be on the phone all the time. And this was before, like, you know, cell phones where you could just do your job, whatever. She was basically tethered to that house. And so she stopped leaving the house. She started gaining weight. She became very sort of uncomfortable with her physical presence. And so I think all of that sort of took a really, a really big toll and contributed to this idea that I can't get a better man than from somebody that I'm corresponding with in jail because she didn't really have a chance to meet a lot of people.
1: Your biological father, Candido, mm-hmm. seems, you know, like everybody. We're all contradictions. On one hand, on the face of it a hard-working, yes. dedicated man absolutely, who left. And on one hand, it's very understandable sure. why he did, sure. that knife that she was holding would sure. have something to do with it. And on the other hand, how can you do this? Yeah, yeah. Because you're leaving this three-year-old child with this woman who grabs a knife out of the
0: drawer. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you clarified that, because, yeah, it wasn't a metaphoric knife. It was an actual yeah. knife. <laughs> it was a literal knife. And I think the thing with... Um, With Gandhi though, and part of the reason that this book was so positive, such a positive experience for me to write, when I started writing this book, when I'd actually sold it to my publishing company, I didn't know where my father was. And it was only during the process of writing this book that I found him. He was living in Whittier, California, 30 minutes away. He had lived there this basically his entire life. And my mother had created all of these sort of fantastical outcomes for him. Oh, maybe the Mexican mafia abducted him, maybe you know somebody threw a brick at his head and he got amnesia, all these sort of ridiculous things. But of course the simplest solution was the correct one. He just left and started his life over, met a new woman, had three children. So when I discovered that he existed, I discovered that I also had three brand new sisters. And in meeting him for the book and interviewing him and getting his thoughts about what had happened between him and my mother, those contradictions were still readily apparent. You know, here is a man who is a hard worker, had taken care of his three daughters. I've met them. I love them. They are gorgeous, extraordinary young women. He did a phenomenal job as a father to them. And I have to qualify that with those last two words because he was clearly capable of it. But at the same time, like, I just had this blank 30-year absence. There were no cards. There were no letters. There was no money that was ever sent to, you know, our house It's not like we ever moved. And so it, it was literally as if he could just sort of compartmentalize that part of his life, put it in a box, and store it away. And the thing that's extraordinary to me about it is he still had pictures of me from when I was a small child, that he hid in plain sight. They had family photo albums that when I met him for the first time in, in 2010, or re-met him, you know, they took the family photo albums, like, oh, there I am. And one of my sisters said, oh, we thought that was a cousin or somebody, you know? We didn't realize this was his, like, son that he had just sort of, like, left and So, I think that he probably is still reconciling with this himself every day because, you know, we are back in touch and that's really fantastic, but I get a call from him once a year, I would like to hear from him more, I don't. I should probably call him more, I don't. So it's one of those things where the ending of this book is hopeful and optimistic to be sure, but at the same time it also asks the question, what do you do once you've sort of found the thing that you were looking for? And it's maybe not exactly what you thought it would be. We all behave in contradictory
1: ways. I mean, your mother, your grandmother, they did it writ large. They were very dramatic about how they did it. Yes, dramatic is a lovely
0: word to use to describe their behavior. I'm going to use that from now on, very, very dramatic. But at the same time, also very humane. No, that's what I mean.
1: That's what I mean by drama.
0: It was the good parts were so good. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And then when it was bad, it was so bad. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think that it's really important as a writer or, you know, as somebody who writes memoir nonfiction to understand that it's important to capture all of the good parts along with the bad parts because that makes a believable character. And there were really many wonderful moments that I had with my family. Part of the reason that I love to read certainly came – well, it's that duality. I love to read because reading was an escape from how horrible it could get in my house. It was an easy way to just kind of shut off and disappear but reading was also a way to spend time with my grandmother. My grandmother was the one that basically introduced me to the idea of books being sacred, being precious. You know, She was the one that introduced me to the idea of having a library, the fact that you could go to a bookstore and buy books versus books that you would just get from a library, and that being a very important distinction. You know, She was the one that encouraged this idea of just constantly exploring new writers and, and new authors and just reading for the sake of the pleasure of it. Again, that duality, like why I love reading, because it reminds me of my childhood and reminds me of that connection with my grandmother, but also it reminds me of escape too. So the fact that you can have those sort of like complicated dual emotions to a particular activity you were a very very good
1: student when you were a kid you were always in what are they called special classes.
0: yeah I was in the the gifted talented programs yeah and uh you know I think again part of that was from my own sort of precociousness I think that at a certain point I realized oh I would like to be doing more and it wasn't like I had a motivated help helicopter mother per se but it was more like okay You deserve to be in a better class. We're gonna go solve that problem together. I think there were certain things that my mother just kind of took for granted. And uh, the fact that I did well in school was one of those things. I never needed any motivation. At all, like I mean, I think there's this subtle fear that if I didn't do well, that my mother might do. I mean, I don't know how much more worse she could have, worse things she could have done to me, but that there would be somehow a worse outcome for me if I didn't do well at school. But I think also I liked school, and you know the topics I enjoyed, particularly reading, writing. When I was going to elementary school in my neighborhood, there was a large influx of Vietnamese immigrants. And a lot of them needed help reading. And so by the time I was in the fourth grade, I was already acting as basically a surrogate reading tutor for those students. And I found out I really enjoyed it. And it was really pleasurable. So I guess the fact that I'm a writer and an instructor now makes makes a lot of sense. What made you decide to write your memoir, Take This Man? Well, I went to the UC uh, Irvine MFA program right after Stanford because I knew I wanted to write. I was also thinking about law school and everyone wisely told me, go do your MFA and then you can go get your law degree after. And then of course, I met someone in the program so it didn't quite work out that way. Then we ended up moving to New York and so on. But I took a memoir course with Jeffrey Wolf, who was a wonderful instructor, just just an incredible writer, very just... Duke uh, of Deception? Duke, yeah, he wrote a memoir called The Duke of Deception, which was about his own complicated relationship with his uh, father. And his brother Tobias Wolf, of course, wrote This Boy's Life. So I started talking to him about my family, he's like, you should think about a memoir. And again, this was like the mid-90s, and this was pre-Glass Castle, pre-Running with Scissors. There wasn't really that big crush of memoirs that were out. And he's like, you know, every writer needs to take stock of where they've come from. And he's like, you can't do it in fiction. He's like, fiction will ruin it because, like, basically you'll want to give yourself a happy ending. And I was like, you're absolutely right. And so I started writing it in 1996. Uh, And I have early drafts of that. And I kept trying and failing. I kept trying to put the pieces together because back then my mother and grandmother were still alive. So a number of materials that are in this book are from interviews I did for that memoir course from 1996. And I saved the notes and transcriptions and such. And uh, it was really helpful, obviously, in putting this book together. But I knew something wasn't clicking. And so basically my ability as a writer needed to catch up because like I wanted to write the book but I just wasn't good enough and so basically now here we are in 2015 like it took me 18 years basically to become good enough to tell this story because it was so complicated it was so multifaceted that I needed really a skilled writer to be able to tell it I wanted to tell it because I wanted to understand how all these things could happen to one family I had so many friends in high school who would say, why do all these bad things seem to happen to you? Well, here's the answer. For any of them out there listening, here's the answer.
1: You knew that you were going to be a writer. When did you know that? How did you come to that?
0: I think high school is probably when it first dawned on me. And I think that was in part because it was something I was good at. I didn't have a lot of mentors growing up. I mean, that's kind of an understatement, but... uh, Uh, I worked with this wonderful history teacher. Uh, His name's Howard Shore and he was my 11th grade uh, AP American history teacher. And I remember him being the first person to kind of single me out and say, you know, you're really good at this. You should think about continuing to do this. And about a year later, I started my first real romantic relationship. We were both seniors in high school and she wanted to know the story of how I liked her, when I knew I liked her. And she's like, write it down, write it down like a story. And so I thought that would be a really interesting challenge. And so I had one of those old word processors where you could just see three lines of of your document at any given point. And so I wrote everything on the floppy disk printed everything out very meticulously, gave her the stack of pages, and she flipped it. She's like, you know, this is over 80 pages. Well, I didn't want the whole story. I was like, but I, you know, I had this goes back several months, and this was the first time I saw you. The second time I saw you, then I told my friend about you, and blah, 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 blah. And she said somewhat glibly, maybe you should do this for a living, and that stuck. And then when I got to Stanford, I had started taking poli-sci courses in uh, sophomore year, I had an English roommate, a roommate who was an English major, and just sort of by accident took a creative writing course and I was hooked. So I feel like all those sort of like dots just connected together in the right way. And the one thing that I do appreciate about Stanford is that it did open me up to the possibility of how writing could save my life in the same way that reading for many years had sort of saved my life when I was growing up. How could writing save your life? Writing helped bring order out of chaos. And I think that's part of the reason that the memoir for me is so useful so that when, you know, if I have a family at some point down the road, I can tell my children, this is where you came from. And it doesn't have to be a complicated, long-winded explanation. It could just be a simple narrative that they can easily follow, easy to read, you know, in a very straightforward way. I wanted to bring order from the chaos in which I grew up in. And I found that writing was extraordinarily convenient at containing that chaos. I could keep it within the boundaries of the page and I could make things do whatever it is that I wanted them to. And I could express all of these sort of complicated feelings that I had and contain them and keep them somewhere safe as opposed to just sort of like walking around and just being nonstop depressed and such. Like I, I had a place where I could like, almost like a container based, like a vault. And I could just sort of put these emotions there and just sort of freeze them. And then I could come back to them and thaw them out whenever I wanted to. Um, So for me, it was a lot about sort of deconstructing the chaos so that it wasn't toxic, sort of detoxifying my chaos. You are a judge
1: for the finals of Poetry Out Loud. That's right. Does poetry play a part in, in your reading? What's your relationship to poetry? And how is it different from your
0: relationships to other kinds of books? I have the utmost respect for poetry for two reasons. Number one, my girlfriend's a poet. Number two, yes, yes, absolutely. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I know I am a terrible writer of poetry. I love reading it. I love listening to it. I go to lots of uh, poetry readings, obviously. But every time I've tried to do it on my own, I fail miserably. And so I always have the greatest respect for something that's done on the page that I know I could never do. I think I wrote one poem in college that was inspired by the L.A. riots, and it was just as bad and terrible as you could possibly imagine. And after doing that, I was like, yeah, I think I'm just going to stick with prose because that's what's comfortable for me. But when I was at the MFA program at UC Irvine, a number of my friends were poets, and I think the idea of compression, of basically taking – These large complicated feelings and compressing them into prose that's so chiseled, that's so tight, the elegance of one simple line, one simple sentence. You can do that in poetry in ways that really aren't appreciated in prose, that aren't appreciated in short stories or memoirs or novels, because I think the expectation there, you know, you can read stuff for literary pleasure, but the fact is you have to tell a story. Narrative poetry has to tell a story too, but The expectations are that, like, you have a page to do it in. And there are many times in which I am jealous of the fact that, like, if I have, like, a feeling or emotion or a specific moment in time I want to write about, but I don't want to write, like, an entire, like, thousand words or whatever, I wish I had the ability to just write 10 lines, 20 lines, 30 lines, whatever the case may be, to kind of capture the essence of that moment. I think poets are exceptional at capturing the essence of a specific moment and poetry is just so helpful in guiding us through those moments. You think about all the places in which poetry presents itself in today's society, weddings, funerals, the inauguration, all these sort of important milestones where basically poetry has a chance to have its say. Nobody would let you read a 14-page short story at Barack Obama's inauguration. Nobody's got time for that. But you you could convey all these feelings, emotions, so specifically in a poem. And I'm constantly on the lookout for new poems and new poetry to help me learn how to be a better writer. Because I think anybody that wants to learn how to write should start first with poetry. Basically, if you look at, like, a, like, something in a memoir or something in a novel, you know, every word does its own, sort of, like, carries its own weight. In a poem, a word has to do the work of, like, four words or five words or ten words. Every word there has to do so much more heavy lifting, for lack of a better phrase. And I can't imagine a better place for any writer of any age to begin. And that's why it's so exciting to be judging this uh, Poetry Out Loud competition, because to see these young students who are captivated by the idea, they understand the power that a poem read out loud can have to captivate an audience, to reach an audience, to communicate to an audience. That's fantastic. Because Poetry Out
1: Loud is a recitation competition, it means all these students have memorized these poems. Do you think you have a different relationship with the poem that you memorize?
0: Yes, absolutely. Knowing a poem by heart. I'm a Facebook friends with a poet named Eduardo Corral. I think that's actually part of his classroom component where they have to memorize a poem. And understanding how a poem works without having to look at it on the page, just sort of like seeing it in your mind, yeah, it's extraordinarily instructive. I think that poets get the opportunity to focus on things that I feel that I would love to spend more time thinking about. The way certain words sound together, for example, you know, nobody's going to read through my memoir and look on page 74 and appreciate the way these, like, three words in a sentence sound together, but you can do that in a poem, and you can do that in particular with a poem that you've memorized because you know it inside out. And being able to sort of carry this around with you and being able to recite it to whomever you meet on demand. It's like carrying your own little library in your head, which I think is just amazing and beautiful.
1: That's author Brando Skyhorse. Brando Skyhorse is one of the judges for the 2015 Poetry Out Loud final, which will be held at the listener Auditorium here in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, April 29th, beginning at 7 p.m. It's free and open to the public, so come. And if you can't make it to the listener, no worries. We're broadcasting it live. Go to arts.gov for details. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.